This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Eves. Welcome back, everybody, to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and we're here to become better habitat managers. I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving holiday over the weekend. Today is Cyber Monday, December 2nd, and... Uh, I just got done eating some more leftovers, so hope you all had a great weekend uh, with the family, you know, and we're all thankful for uh, everything we were able to do in this great country, spend time with our family, and, uh, you know, work on Habitat, a couple things that I'm thankful for, at least. I want to thank the listeners for tuning in once again. We can't say thank you enough to you guys for keep coming back, you know, and, uh, and supporting the podcast. I know it's been hunting season, and we've all been busy chasing the the deer around the woods, but uh, it's almost habitat season uh, here in Michigan, at least. I'm going to start firing up that chainsaw as soon as deer season is done. I have some deer to catch up on, as you will hear uh, in this episode here, where we have Matt Zoll from West Michigan. That's a buddy of mine I've known for a little while now, and uh, he's a pretty good deer hunter. He's also a small property owner. He owns 10 acres in West Michigan. That's it. Uh, so him and I can relate, along with the rest of you, on, on how to manage a small property like this. A couple of things we cover uh, are his, you know, his 10-acre habitat plans, current, and uh, what he's planning on doing into 2020. We talk about some conifer and fruit tree planting, which is something we all like to do here at the podcast, uh, you know, come spring. He has some interesting tips on how to get a better survival rate than, you know, what I've had, at least in the past by painting the roots with a certain product. We also talk about 
some hunting strategy. He hunts some state land by his house as well, so that can keep the pressure off his 10 acres. But the focus today is kind of an update on my season, Brian's season, and Matt's season, along with, you know, some habitat structure and plan for his property now and moving forward. So tune in there, guys. Stay with us. I hope you uh, enjoy this episode with Matt Zoll from West Michigan. Like I mentioned earlier, today is Cyber Monday, and we are offering a discount to our listeners. All the gear on the website, you get a 10% off code right here. The code is LOYAL10. That's L-O-Y-A-L-1-0. No spaces. It's 10% off just for the listeners of the podcast. Really appreciate you guys supporting us, and I uh, thought we'd give back and uh, you know offer this deal today on the gear at habitatpodcast.com. You can also find all of our episodes there if you're a new listener, and uh, you know all of our social media con- contact information is on there as well. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, all that good stuff. We are always on there uh, almost daily, so be sure to check us out there. I'd like to thank HuntWise for helping uh, me out when I was up north on the state property here in, in Michigan and also on my Iowa trip. I use that app uh, a lot more than I thought I would, to be honest with you, um, especially the, the property ownership. So like you know other apps out there, this has the ownership listed to where you can see you know, whoever owns the property. I don't use that much you know, around my 15 acres because I know everybody around there and I'm not venturing off that property. But in Iowa, there was multiple parcels we could hunt, and up north in the state land for rifle season, you know, tons of state land. So we have to know where the state met the private, and it's actually the most up-to-date app that I've seen. I was comparing it to, with a buddy of mine up there, and uh, like I mentioned before, this was very new and uh, very up-to-date based on the property ownership. So what a good app. They have a giveaway going on on Facebook right now. It's a huge giveaway on their app as well for uh, pro users. Please be sure to check out HuntWise at HuntWise.com or the HuntWise app and mention Habitat Podcast. This episode is also brought to you by Killer Food Plots. Nick Percy at Killer Food Plots is also having a uh, Cyber Monday deal. So please check them out at KillerFoodPlots.com. And, you know, we talk about one of his products in this video in this podcast here called Retain. This is an item that you paint on the roots of your plants. You plant in the soil of your food plots, and it helps retain moisture. So stay tuned to hear about that or go on KillerFoodPlots.com to read more. Lastly, this episode is brought to you by Michigan Whitetail Pursuit. So MWP and the guys over there have been putting down some nice gear this year. Be sure to check out MichiganWhitetailPursuit.com or the new group, this year, which is a great group with a lot of good uh, deer hunting recipes, strategy, just deer hunting talk uh, at the Michigan White Hill Pursuit on Facebook. Check them out there if you guys don't mind. All right, well, that's it for this, guys. Let's get into the podcast with Matt Zoll, 10-acre property, not even 10 acres, 9.96, and how he is a successful bow hunter using just a little bit of property. Welcome back, everybody. Another episode of the Habitat Podcast. I have uh, my trusty co-host, Brian Hallbly, on the line. What's going on, B? Thanksgiving Eve, brother. Ready to get some turkey and pumpkin pie down tomorrow. Yeah, that's my favorite holiday because I like to eat. Me too. 
and obviously being thankful. But um, we have a special guest tonight, Matt Zoll from West Michigan. What's up, Matt? How's it going, Jared? How's it going, Brian? Going, going good. Good, uh, good going to be good. on. Good to be on. Yeah, we've been, uh, you and I have been talking for a long time, trying to get something going here. Uh, we thought yeah, I think you, you and I were both secretly waiting for something to happen so far this season, but <laughs> yeah, no, I was hoping for the West Michigan, you know, 150 inch whitetail off state land, right? Like something easy, you know? Oh, yeah, I mean, that would have gave us a lot to talk about, that's for sure, exactly. And and we were hoping for a game plan. Um, I guess when you hope for things, uh, they might not happen, but so now it's you and I and Brian, all buckless. <laughs> hey, I got a pronghorn buck. Does that count? You know what? He's, he's one count. up on us. You know what, Brian? It does count. I don't. I'm not quite uh, happy the way you saw that in there, but I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> no, Brian, good for you. You are not buckless, so I take that back. So L who is not on the podcast, but a friend of ours, and Matt and Jared are all buckless. Um, yes. And Brian is white tail buckless. And I'm we're East here. Coast buckless. Yep. Midwest buckless. That's okay. We're still, uh, we're hanging in there. It's uh, late November. Um, we have a lot of season left, and we're just, you know, we're going to get together tonight, talk with Matt. We're going to talk about our season, how it's gone so far, and uh, get into some of Matt's habitat work that he does on his property, small property, um, which relates mm-hmm. to a lot of us. But, Brian, why don't you tell us how your whitetail hunting has been going for the last maybe week and a half, two weeks. We'll hear it from Matt as well. We'll hear it from me, and then we'll kind of dive into the habitat stuff. Yeah, it's been pretty tough. Uh, I got back from Montana and had a couple of weeks left to uh, get after the whitetails and just uh, I think I've seen two shooters within, you know, 60, I think one was 60 some yards, the other one was like 75 and that's that's as close as I've got to a shooter buck and uh, woke up one day and my reputation was over and had to start going back to work and making money and Thanksgiving's upon us, so I'll be, I'll be still getting out, but it'll be pretty limited to this point. Didn't see any type of um, chasing or uh, much rutting activity at all. I'm, I missed the whole boat somewhere. Wrong stands, I guess. Really? Wow. Yeah. Were you on your farm most of the time, or? Uh, about half. I bounce around with 40 acres. I try not to burn it out. Um, Dave Ham and I found a great public swamp about 15 minutes from my farm. We got a picture of a really nice buck, and we went in after him a couple times. Um, didn't see any shooters in there, a couple of doe. Just, it's just been the same story for me all season, no matter if I'm hunting around the house in PA or hunting down at the farm in Ohio. It's just been kind of slow and small bucks and does. Yeah. Hmm. Matt, yeah, I'm gonna, my story is pretty similar to him too. <laughs> um, I mean, 
We had I've had a couple good good sits, and I would say more towards uh, early November postseason on the lease that were pretty productive as far as seeing like numbers of bucks and stuff like that. It's, I think on the lease I've seen sitting, I've seen two shooters um, jumped one up walking into stand. Um, the biggest one we had on camera, he's a best we can figure from pictures. He's a thirteen pointer. Um, he's a <clears throat> five by five with three kickers and kind of trashy stuff on the right hand side. And my uh, one of my good buddies actually had the only encounter in the tree stand um, at with that deer um, one morning. I think it was November the second or third or something like that. And uh, it came in trailing a doe, doe across the lane at like 10 yards. He was getting ready to draw, and as he was drawing the stand, it popped because it was so cold that morning, and he froze. He didn't, like, look up in the stand, but he knew something was goofy, and he just kept watching that doe kind of work back into a loop. And instead of crossing the lane, he only had to go about five more feet to clear and get into a shooting lane. And uh, he ducked around and turned and went back where he was to loop back up to chase it after that doe. But that was our biggest target buck this year up there that we had pictures of. So real, real quick, Matt, uh, what type of stand was that? Do you know? So like an expensive stand, or you know, stand? it was a it was a stand that was owned by one of the guys that's up there. That I think it's an old API, like decently yeah. old one. Yeah. Um, but it was just it was one of those first frigid, frigid, cold like twenty degree mornings or high teens mornings that we had. And uh, it was kind of a, you had to turn, I don't know, kind of towards the back side of the, of the left side of the tree there if you're a right-handed shooter. And as he was turning to draw, just that weight shift in the stand, I think, caused some kind of a creak or pop. And it was, yeah. he said it was dead silent out there. So any oh, little bit of noise was just audible anywhere. I, I yeah. just, I feel so bad for, for guys when that happens. And it's like, and this may be, you know, kind of off topic already in the podcast, but if I have a stand that creaks or pops on me, I will literally throw it away. It's, it's, well, <laughs> I, like, think yeah. about it. Like, I'm, I mean, it sounds crazy, but if you hit, like, my summit climber started to creak after, like, eight years. It started to kind of creak when you lean one way. Mm-hmm. All you need is one creak and your day's over, you know? Especially, yeah, on that, uh, on that big deer, yeah, I, I definitely what happens. It's I get where you're deer. coming from for sure. Yeah, and I'm not saying you know he should throw every stand away or whatever, but it's just like I I don't know. I've been in in that situation. I've I've heard the pop and it's it's gut wrenching. That sucks. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, in his case, it might have cost him a potential booner. I mean, obviously, we'll never in Michigan, know what it was unless somebody arrows him, but. Yeah. Um, biggest biggest deer he's killed was down in Illinois, and it was like a 149 some change. And he said, "This was bigger." This one put it. He said this one was was substantially bigger, and uh, wow. he said biggest deer he's seen in Michigan that he's actually seen in you know in person. So, and he's been around quite a few you know pretty decent white tails and. Wow. So yeah, it was he was uh, he was pretty shook up that day. I tell you what, but. So what else happened with your season after that, Matt? What have you been seeing? Um, I've seen a couple decent eights up there um, on the lease. A lot of, like I said, the um, I was talking to you guys earlier, the standing corn up there really has put a dampener on our deer. Yeah. We have 
we have food plots on on the 120 acres that we have up there on the lease, and um, they they hit those, especially the the brassicas, which we were really hoping for, you know, that they wouldn't be hammering them too too bad. We had some other options up there for them, but um, all the tubers and and bulbs that we had up there for them, they smashed those hard in late August and early September to the point where, you know, if you go out there now, you get overseeded with a ton of the cereal grains just to compensate for the lack of uh, green forage that we were going to have for them. Um, we also have a ton of uh, old apple trees up on the property, probably like 120. And last year it was a bumper crop. And this year, you know, maybe 5% of the trees produced and of the trees that they produced, it was probably 75% less apple that was the previous year. So combo that with the standing corn and a lot of our deer are being pulled elsewhere right now with a lot of that corn still being up and not harvestable. So our deer sightings and numbers in stand have been substantially lower this year. I would say on average last year we'd maybe see between 10 and 20 deer sit if you're in the right spot. And this year, you know, somewhere between 2 and 10, maybe, on a good day. So, pretty big swing. Um, so, the lease has been kind of going like that. My property at my house, my uh, I had my property select cut um, last year. So, this is the first year that it's had, you know, the first year of regrowth and brought in some trees and whatnot. And uh, had a really good buck on camera that was coming in probably... He started showing up at 2, 3 in the morning, and then he would get closer and closer to just after sunset. I think the closest he came in was about 20 minutes after shooting light, 30 minutes after shooting light, somewhere in there. My dad and I are the only ones that hunt here, but uh, we keep the pressure pretty low, only hunt on good days. Um, he's got a raised tower shaney, one of those five-sided blinds from terrain, so he can kind of control the wind pretty good when you want to. And one morning I was going to work and saw a really good buck chase a doe out of my big plot across the road right in front of me. So I called my dad right away, told him he should get out there and hunt that night. And he had an opportunity at, uh, I think, the second biggest buck that we had on camera this year at my house. Um, it was just after it rained that morning, came in silently through not his direct visibility, and he just happened to look out the one side of the blind, and he was standing there 10 yards broadside. And it was on the side when he had one of his windows closed, so he couldn't make the move and get him there, which which sucks, but that's the way it goes. Oh, man. So, yep. Um, And then uh, I've hunted state land a little bit this year with the bow. Not a ton. Did do uh, a little quick scout trip early November. Uh, One of my old spots that's been a very good producer over the years has just got good, good terrain, like, the, the bucks just like this particular inland marsh surrounded by a bunch of hardwoods and uh, found a bunch of big fresh rubs and some scrapes. Went in there with my climber one night and uh, next morning had an encounter with a big ten and he needed to come about uh, 10, 12 more yards or so to clear the edge of these cattails. And as he was coming my way, he was in there grunting up a storm and raking all these willows and uh, he was on his way out, and he must have bumped or picked up a doe somewhere in there because I just saw her kind of flick her tail as she went out to the north, and he followed suit, and that was the end of that. Is that the same uh, spot you've been talking about for a few years now, whether it's on yeah, uh, I know. Aaron's I know. podcast or Adam's podcast or whatever? Yeah, it's like six minutes, seven minutes from my house. Um, yeah, I actually killed my... Spot, man. 
my, oh, it's it's a really good spot, and it's really overlooked. Um, surprisingly, the spot where I've killed my first and third biggest bucks with a bow or a gun. Um, state land. From where I, what's that? State land. Yeah, state West land. Yeah. Um, from where I parked my truck to where I hunt in the tree, it's probably less than 200 yards, 250 yards somewhere in there. Wow. So not very far at all. Um, that's on like the smaller pocket of the marsh where I was scouting and where I had the encounter with this big one was on a little bit bigger marsh, but still, I mean, on a, if you were out there right now sitting with all the leaves down and you get high enough in the tree, you could probably see where I parked my truck from where I'm at in this tree where I had that encounter with that, with that 10 earlier this year. But like I said, it just, it's overlooked. Well, very nice. You've had a decent season though. Uh, so far, though, yeah. you know, we're we're all buckless so far, but, right. um, you know, it doesn't sound bad. No, not bad at all. I mean, definitely have had good experiences and, you know, got to, you know, put boots on the ground in some different areas. I got an alert, or we had a pretty good encounter, my dad and I, with a big buck from Alpena. I was sending you some pictures of that buck. I know on the opener, I was, once I found that sign up there on that opening weekend, I was, I kind of set my mind that that was the only deer I really wanted to squeeze the trigger on, but that just didn't pan out or work out either. But he was a, he was a brute for up there. We got really low deer density up where we go on the state land up there, but typically there's always one good, good, good buck out where we go. And uh, that just happened to be him this year and it, it didn't work out the way we were honestly hoping, but that's, that seems to be the, the moral of the story for this year. <laughs> I hear you, buddy. I um, want to give a little update on, on my season so far, too. Uh, I've been pretty much putting all of my eggs in the Iowa basket, as uh, you all have heard for the last how many episodes we've talked about Iowa. Um, I hunted one time in Michigan on my 15 before Iowa, my daughter Ava, and we saw five bucks and three doe. It was pretty awesome. Um, even saw a, a, the, the nicest buck we saw while we were climbing up the ladder into the line, so that was pretty cool. And uh, my daughter saw a bunch of deer, and, and we had a good time. So that was really cool. I wish I would have hunted my property more. I, what I've learned is that my 15, I think, is really hot between mid-October, like as early as like the 14th, 15th, through... Probably November 10th, somewhere in there, that that three, four week time time crunch where I'm sure most people's property is, is great then, but that's when mine seems to be taking off, especially that early. Um, early is mid-October, which I would have never thought, but after three years of hunting it, it seems to be that's when they're in there. And then I, I, I went to Iowa. I spent... Uh, I think seven and a half full days hunting. Um, long story long, I'm still not quite ready to talk about what happened, but I did release one arrow on the biggest buck of my life. I put it through him, and I aimed too low. I was I was too steep up in my tree stand, and uh, he was too close. I didn't aim high enough to get that that downward angle, and I think I got like a one lung liver, or maybe just liver, 
Um, like I said, long story long, we, we did not find that deer. He went on a neighboring property. We were not allowed to pursue him there. But I may have a chance to go back out there in January for some redemption. And then, you know, not to discount the Iowa story, but we got back. Um, I went to, to do the state land thing with my dad and brother, which I do every single year in northern Michigan. Uh, we did not see much up there either. So I burned all my time without much to show. And now we're <laughs> sitting here late November, you know. Uh Trying to figure out what the next game plan is. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I could talk yeah. about my Iowa story for for hours. It was the best hunt I've ever been on. There's no question there. I drew back three times on bucks. Uh, they wouldn't stop because they're literally chasing does like freaking TV show. You see, um, <laughs> it was insane. It was literally insane. I'll never probably have a hunt like that again. If I do, I'll be lucky. It was. It was amazing. I shot my deer. I shot that deer, that buck. He's about 150 inch ten point with a flyer off his G2. That was three to four inches long. Uh, that, that was what I judged him at. I'm just a Michigan boy, so who the hell knows what he was? But <laughs> I shot him at 2:15 p.m. at 61 degrees on November wow. 6th. So that's just not normal. You know, or maybe it is, but to me, I've never seen that before in my life, and it was just amazing. Um, lived up to the hype. I didn't, yeah, no, it lived up to the hype. I, uh, I just didn't aim high enough, and I'm regretting it every single 10 minutes of every day of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just pissed off still. Um, but. You know, I've, I haven't done that in a long time. I, I've lost deer before. Everybody who bow hunts, you know, you lose a deer sooner or later if you hunt long enough. To sure. Stay. Um, I haven't done it in a long time. I, I'm i really mad still, but it's just uh, part of it. It's the best time I've ever been on still. I don't know. I don't know what to say. Brian, take it from here. <laughs> well, we might as well dive into uh, Matt's property a little bit. I'd like to hear his setup and... Uh, what he has going on over there. I think it's a great idea. Matt, why don't you uh, kind of give us a, a picture of you know, who you are, where you're from, uh, what your property's like. Uh, I know you've had it for a few years. Now you've been doing some work. And then maybe we'll get into what you're planning on 2020. Yeah. Okay. So um, that's all. I am a physical therapist. I'm over here in West Michigan. I work in a little town called Fremont. And I... Uh, live in Montague. That's where my property is. So pretty close to Lake Michigan area. I think we're about um, 8 or 10 years as a pro flies from Lake Michigan. So not too far. Um, so my property is kind of a uh, it's a it's a narrower, deeper chunk of property. I think we're 440 or 450 at the road and almost 1,000 feet deep. Um, obviously road frontage on the front. Um, the entire back border of my property is um, Creek. It's a little creek called Sand Creek. They got brook trout and brown trout in there. And um, The south end of this creek actually has a dam down there and it's called Brown's Pond. Um, so it gets about like 10-12 feet deep down there. There's actually some pretty decent trout fishing down there. 
Um, I paddle my kayak down there in the springtime and, and enjoy that a little bit. But right up by my house then, because it's dammed up, it kind of creates a confluence. So I have the creek coming from north to south and then a little bit of backwash coming from that south part of the dam. So it gets a little wider at so I think at the widest crossing point, um, it's probably 30 foot, 40 foot wide maybe. And then the further up to the north of my property in the backside, it gets narrow probably. There's a couple little splits in the creek where you got to cross maybe 10 foot of water or so to get to a couple of islands and then you can get across. So um, I knew right away that when we bought the property, the challenge was going to be based on where the house was located because the, the guy who built the house built it for a, kind of a scenic lookout. He built the house about 700 feet off the road. So it's up on a little bit of a knoll. You can see down towards the water and the creek. Um, not where I would have been building the house, obviously, but that's where the house is. So you kind of kind of make do with where it's at and try and figure out how to make the most of it. Um, so that's kind of the layout of the property. And, uh, and how big? The initials. Um, it's uh, just under 10. It's like 9.96 acres, I think, is what it comes out to be. Sweet. So... Yeah. Um, initial initial stuff that I had to deal with is it's pretty much rolling hardwoods for the most part. Um, I had some pretty big virgin timber, giant white pines in there, like five foot, five and a half foot in diameter at the base. Wow. Um, yeah, some some big boys, but they uh, they took up a lot of sunlight, so they had uh, some of those had to go last year, but. Uh, then we have some, as it kind of slopes down to the creek, you get uh, some little thicker, brushier stuff down in there. We have some thorn apple and um, some dogwood and, and some other stuff as you get down there. And uh, Did you say thorn apple? Yeah, thorn apple. Is that an actual apple or is that like a Osage or head it's tree? Like a, it's like a... I know it produces fruit, and I'm not a I'm not an arborist by any any means and stuff like that for identification. But um, it's not like an apple, like uh, as in like a fruit apple tree. Like it does produce fruit, but they're they're smaller. Almost the difference between a regular apple tree and a like a larger crab apple. If you split the difference between those two, that's about the size of what those would be. Okay, when, interesting. When they do bear, but they have like the biggest thorns. Um, the tree like it's not like a picker bush where you got like this little half inch thing these are like talons coming off of a, a golden eagle wow like they they could pop your atv tire if you drive the wrong way over one they're pretty pretty brutal crazy yeah i like i like to hear the local names of some things because sometimes we'll have something similar in pa or ohio and i'll say oh we call it this so that's that's why i was asking Oh, yeah. I figured that was probably something to do with it. I, I mean, I was just holding on. Like, well, I mean, that's what we've always called them around sure. here. But I'm, I'm sure there's probably some scientific name that I don't know. Somebody will listen to it and be like, oh, that guy doesn't know. But oh, that's all right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so pretty general property. The the biggest terrain feature that jumped out when we, when we came to look at the house and bought the property was there was a big clearing up towards the road. Um, probably 30 yards off the road and paralleled the driveway, and it was almost an acre or so, three-quarters of an acre. So immediately that kind of was an easy 
destination food plot, I guess you could call it. And therefore, I started off there um, with my the beginnings in like the first year for as far as like habitat management and what I was trying to do for deer. And I was just new into the food plot game and didn't really know what I was doing. Only had a, a lot behind tiller, so I started off making some small strips of a food plot out there and didn't really know how much seed to put down, how much fertilizer to put down, and kind of messed it up pretty well and then uh, kind of just made my way along the way and eventually turns that whole that whole one acre there in the front of three quarters of an acre it's pretty much all all in food which is nice because I I did have a tree stand on there initially when I was first on it because it was really my my best opportunity to shoot deer or see deer over food sure um, but I've since removed that and I just kind of let those deer funnel in there at the end of the evening and I kind of catch them in uh in travel routes to get there right yeah, and then um, picked up a Kubota tractor uh, three years ago, which has been a big game changer as far as um, habitat work goes, whether it's cutting firewood for the house or, you know, making trails or hinge cutting trees, whatever else. And that thing has, has been worth its its money in more ways than one and um, picking up implements for it. I now have a six-foot disc for it and cultipacker and, Forks. I bought a, a, a brush grapple for it the year I got my property select cut, and that's probably the best implement for a tractor as far as like a compact or a subcompact that you can possibly buy. I'd probably even rate that, especially since I've been doing more no-till stuff in the past year or two years, better than anything like disc or rototiller in my opinion. But, yeah, for sure. Yeah, super useful. So, and then. Um, Brought in the first year out in that destination plot, I divided that plot up into like two sections basically, put in four apple trees right down the middle. Um, so those are doing pretty well now. They're getting pruned every single year and producing fruit now, so that's nice. And uh, What varieties up, of apples did you put there? I put two galas, and uh, me not knowing much about apples right away, I put two honey crisps, and definitely regret the two honey crisps. My wife kind of let me talk me into that because she she liked honey crisps, and uh, <laughs> um, they're they're slow grown, and they're not really a tree that you I think will probably ever be able to unfence because okay. I got a feeling the bucks are just gonna smoke all the um the uh, the trunk, and there's a lot of low branches they don't grow to that good goblet shaped you know apple tree that you and i come to know they're kind of those ones if you ever looked at like a like a halloween spooky story type of thing they're those really weird skinny whiny tangy sure. ones so okay <laughs> and uh so i got the tractor and I, I i started opening up some trail systems from that front plot kind of snaking and winding through the property to get towards the back of the property down to the creek. I had kind of a natural clearing just to the north of the house, probably 100 yards or so. And uh, that kind of became my second little project of trying to create a little kill plot in there. But first couple of years, or first year, I'd say I did it, put it in there, immediately recognized that the spring stuff would take off pretty well. But as soon as the foliage would start to leaf out, the sun got shaded out, and that was the end of that story. I couldn't, you know, 
you could just immediately see that it was just struggle busting from there on out. So that kind of led me to the, the biggest upgrade and the biggest change that I've done, which was, like I said last year, um, late spring, early summer, got the property select cut, and they came in and took uh, half of the, the big mature white pines that I was talking about earlier, and then they took every poplar that was 10 inches in diameter, baby like chest high now was that hard to find someone to come work on a property that small for for pine and poplar or did you have some more hardwoods in there that they took they ended up taking two or three hardwoods um that were kind of veneer um like two or three stuff. trees period what's that like two or three acres or two or three trees period, no two or, or three trees he said okay. no just these two or three trees and actually um, mutual friend of ours, Nick Percy, yeah. he's, uh, his uh, timber guy, um, He, I was talking to Nick about wanting to have this done, and he said, well, before you go to any logger, any forester, or whatever else, he says, you need to give you know my buddy a call that does the work for us on our properties, and it was probably the best decision I've ever made. I learned more about just the woods in general from this guy on the walk through the property when he was scaling up stuff and marking trees and talking to me about like I had a vision that I wanted all those white pine going and he basically talked me out of taking every single white pine and taking about half of them and just for it to create still like the, you know the diversity in the forest and you know stuff to go to seed and you don't want to remove all the native species and you know, all that type of stuff, but he was the one that kind of steered me towards the, the route that I went on, and I talked to Nick about it, and Nick felt pretty good about it, too. Nick was out and walked the property as well, and uh, it's a it's a father-son, like, team. That's the only two guys that were out ever doing the cutting or the skidding. Um, they, they did it pretty quick. I was going to, they probably took a total of between, I think, two weeks or so, two and a half weeks maybe, and all the trees were down, skidded out to a, kind of a loading zone, and they had them lagged off, and I had money in my pockets, and perfect. it was, then the real work began, because, man, those pine tops on those big trees, hmm. holy smokes, it was a lot to clean up, and the, the one thing I will say about these two that were, was a big, uh, a big bonus for them is <clears throat> when the, the guy's name is Rick, um, he said that if his son says he can put a tree down in one spot, he can, you know, put a tree and drop it right on and, you know, you put a dot in the middle of the forest and he can probably put that tree right there. And I will say that the minimal amount of collateral damage was impressive. Like I didn't have any oaks that yeah. got sideswiped or died off. I mean, I think maybe there was one or two trees that went down that they weren't planning on or that they lost because there was too much scarring or whatever else. But everything else, if the only trees I lost were the trees that they skidded out and, and sold for money. So that was a huge benefit. I didn't have to go clean up a whole pile of mess that shouldn't have been taken down in the first place, you know. No, that that's really good to hear. I mean, we uh, obviously promote Nick and Killer Food Plus all the time, so it's it's good to hear somebody who's had his forestry side of things uh, done on their property, and uh, you know what what you have to say about it. So that's cool. I'm glad it worked out. I know you've been working yeah. with Nick for a long time, longer yeah, than I yeah. have. So it was 
it was that project cleaning up tops was was based on the time that they cut it and uh it was kind of a that's probably why last year i didn't see as many bucks or even the caliber of bucks that i usually get on camera um because it was just so much change last year i mean we had that had it logged my neighbor was over with his trap or with his tractor and uh and his brush grapple and i had mine my dad was over i mean we were working Every day when I get home from work at 5:30, I'd be on my tractor running lights until 9:30, 10 o'clock at night at times, like every single day, just trying to get stuff prepped and get stuff cleaned out and move stuff around. And uh, if it wasn't for my neighbor and my dad across the street, probably wouldn't have got half the amount done that I wanted to that first year. Still did a little bit of that cleanup this year, but. Basically now what I have after all that cutting is I have a, a trail system from my front destination plot all the way down to or through my property. It connects to a mini kill plot where I have my kind of big topper shanty over top. And then that trail kind of continues to wind past the tower shanty. It splits into two directions. One pass is down by a tree stand I have hung down by the creek. And then it actually loops and connects back with the same trail system, and that drops down into another mini kill plot that you still can shoot from the uh, that tree stand that hung down there. And I have since put in three pear trees down there, uh, two angelies, and one Bartlett, I believe. And then uh, down below my hill in my backyard there, as it slopes down towards the creek, I put in um, four more apple, apple trees and two crab apples down there. I think I got two galas, one red delicious, and one yellow delicious down there. Okay, so quick question, quick thought I had. Uh, we should probably tell the listeners what kind of success have you had with your small property in the last few years since you've owned it? So I set a goal for myself that um, I wasn't going to shoot a deer unless. It was two and a half or older on my property, and it would have to be, you know, the right two and a half. And, you know, my goal outside of my property, I would say up on my lease, I have like a three and a half year old rule up there, mature deer. But my house with the constituents I was dealing with, I thought like, you know, if I start myself off at trying to shoot a three and a half year old, might not ever shoot a deer off this property for a long time. Um, so I wanted to give myself that kind of success. I would say the first two years I didn't shoot a deer off the property, not because I didn't like want to or didn't have the opportunities. It's just I didn't have that right deer in front of me, small bucks and does. And I was in a position in other places where I didn't want to start shooting does if I didn't really know a kind of a good idea what the deer density was and how many deer there actually were, how many does were having fawns and whatnot. Um, and it was year three that I shot my first deer off here, and it was a two-and-a-half-year-old eight-pointer. I shot him October 13th. I think it was like a Tuesday night or something. Um, cold front came through. I got out of work late, had like an hour and a half to hunt, quick change clothes. I had pictures of this buck coming in with a five-pointer probably four or five nights out of the past seven. So quick went and jumped on the big plot and I think I had like you know, six or eight deer out there and four or five bucks and that guy came out at last light. He stepped out, I arrowed him at 50 yard or 15 yards and he ran about 50 or 55 and 
that was the that was the first the first year I took off the property. Nice job. That's awesome. Yeah. It felt good. It felt good to to know like what you were doing was, was accomplishing, you know, the idea of just getting the deer in front of you. Um which which felt nice. I mean that was the I think the first year that I had the tractor, so I expanded that big plot to as much food as I could put in up there and it was it was one of the first times where I've had the opportunity to sit in front of 10 plus deer out in the field and just watch them. I mean, I grew up hunting state land. My dad owns 10 acres, but it's never been managed for deer. I hunted back there and killed a couple deer back there, but it was never managed to the point where you would be successful on a yearly basis. It was basically a travel corridor property if you were lucky from point A to point B and, you know, maybe you'd see deer maybe it wouldn't type of thing so you know for for me to go from that to this year where I was putting deer consistently in front of me every time I would sit was a was a big accomplishment in of itself and then to be able to arrow a buck that was a that was a big step in, in the direction that I was wanting to take you know in the habitat game so sure yeah it sounds like you've had some success already with some of the uh, plans that you executed. Uh, what, yeah. are you looking, what are you looking forward to now? What kind of uh, plans do you have for next year or further down the line to make some more improvements? Well, I'm, I'm really liking the same year I put in those apple trees, I put in 100 Norway spruce up as a perimeter around that big destination plot. Um, I put them in staggered rows, three of them up, three rows of them up by the road kind of make a permanent screen two along my driveway so those are about anywhere from like three foot to six foot tall some of them now so in the next couple of years having that fully kind of screened off where you can feel real secure I mean right now I can drive down the driveway and there's and most of the time they don't care they just kind of look at you and stuff but having that security there in the next few years is going to be nice I brought in last spring, I bought um, 80 Black Hill spruce and kind of selectively put them into the pockets and the gaps and the openings where I felt it would be beneficial based off of that select cutting that I did um, just to bring in some more kind of year-round cover for those deer. Um, I'm getting a lot of regrowth and poplar cutting, which is really nice to see. Some of those shoots are five, six feet even after just one year growing, which is really nice. So I think this year is really going to blow up. Now that it's been, it'll be two years of sunlight and two years of spring growth. So I'm really excited to see how thick the property gets, um, you know, kind of midway through the summer here. I started working on after Nick came out to do a little property walkthrough and consult after it was cut, he kind of was telling me about a lot of the smaller diameter trees, you know, you're talking two inches to maybe four inches. Instead of hinge cutting those trees, he talked about getting yourself some paracord, looping them around the top and actually bending them over with your tractor, tying them off. Um, okay. Trees won't die that way if you have a small enough tree where you can do it. And he talked about making a little, almost like, like a, you know, like a little kid's gonna crawl through the McDonald's playhouse, you know, with a little funnel, little tubes. Sure. Almost making 
tubes and travel corridors that will go in through your pockets of cover, out into the food, across the food, back into a pocket of cover, especially with the type of food plot design and layout that I had to kind of create based off of the cutting and the topography that I was dealt with. And just creating a kind of like a maze almost that you would create for that deer to work through your property when he first enters it to when he's going to ideally get to the destination, whether that's to go look for does or season or, you know, whatever that I see. So I started doing a little bit of that last year, um, tying some trees off and, and getting, you know, basically, like I said, it, it essentially creates like a hinge cutting process, but without the, without the potential die off if something, something happens to the tree. And uh, I didn't want to do too much of that last year without knowing what the regrowth was going to look like. Um, I hate to tie trees off in certain directions, and then all of a sudden, you know, the forest blow up in one area, and like, oh, man, that looks really sweet over there. That's a pretty sweet, a different pattern or a different path for that tree after that tree has already had that muscle memory from being tied down for a year, year and a half or something like that. So, sure, that, that's kind of what I'm looking forward to this year is, is seeing where the thickness is going to come up and then how I can use the existing cover and the densities to kind of create those those travel corridors and those movement areas for those deer to kind of steer them by the stands. Now you mentioned uh, the paracord alternative, the hinge cutting. Have you have you done much hinge cutting at all? I, I did. I did some hitch cutting about two and a half, three years ago. I bought uh, Extreme Deer Habitat from uh, Dr. Jim Broker, or Broker, Broker, however you pronounce his last name. Um, that was probably one of the best books I ever bought just because it taught me how to fell trees, not just for hinge cutting, but just in general, which was for sure. which was awesome. Definitely would recommend that book. And um, so I hinge cut some stuff then. I didn't really do a lot until after I had my property cut because I didn't want to get stuff laid out, and then who knows where those big trees are going to go down because, man, when those pines hit the ground, they shook the house like you would not believe. Holy smokes. Wow. Yeah, I'm sure and, uh, five or six foot in diameter, they'd, they'd make a pretty yeah. good vibration. Yeah, they did. They hit the ground hard. And uh, so I've been doing a lot more. I do have a lot of soft maple on the property in a few spots. So um, hinged probably eight or ten last year and were able to hold them up in really good areas, specifically closer to the house um, until some of those Black Hill spruce that I planted last year get tall enough to make a, a little bigger screen between my house and some of the areas that I have for food or some of the more open areas now because of the, the select cutting. So right. um, I think the biggest tree I hinged last year was almost 10 inches in diameter as soft maple. Um, and then, but I tend to now, if I can, if I can get my, my tractor bucket up high enough for me to get some paracord on there, I tend to utilize my tractor to, to pull it down into the arc that I want or pull it down low enough where I can where I can try and create that hinge-like effect but without dropping that tree. Okay. Again, like I said, about four inches in diameter is about the, the biggest tree that I've been able to be successful with before you start worried about pulling it up the roots out of the ground or, or having a long, big split, like where you kind of have a backfire hinge cut come out. Right, but, right. But it's definitely nice on those younger ones. Then if you get them tied off early enough, they just continue to grow in that pattern, and it really, really works well.
So, Matt, are you doing any sort of hinge cutting at all in 2020? Now that you've had a logged or select cut, um, any tree above four inches, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I definitely have some thoughts based off of the, the one good fortunate thing is a lot of the a lot of the time my scouting can be done right from my uh, my dining room table while I'm drinking my coffee in the morning and I'm out looking at my plot. I can see where those deer have come into the plot, where they exit, where they go to the north, or where they're heading to the bigger plot or the smaller kill plots and whatnot. And so I obviously can see where I have those gaps in, in cover right now still, even though like it'll be probably six, seven years before those spruce trees I planted are going to give me the cover that I really want. And I still have quite a few um, soft maples that can be hinge cut. So I plan on probably hinge cutting another five to six or maybe up to ten of those bigger trees this year just to just to create a little bit better screen. I dropped a couple right off my backyard, kind of down sloping down towards my creek where the apple trees kind of transition into the pear trees. And that really seemed to encourage a lot of movement. There was a lot of deer that would hang up right behind there on some of the clover that I have going back there. And I think it's just even even still right now, that's where they tend to hang out until it gets a little bit darker because that, that maple that I hinged and put right there really, even without any leaves, creates a pretty good solid screen for them. And I think they just like that security. No, I think uh... – it's obvious that the benefits of that type of uh, practice. I mean, I've seen it on my property for the, the limited amount that I've done so far. I'm definitely going to be doing some more uh, with my hook here come the first of the year. What other things do you have in mind for 2020 in your property that you uh, maybe have been waiting for, or, or what are you getting into this year? I got a couple projects I want to do. I think I'm going to I'm going to buy, and I actually might be buying some Saturday. There's a, I want to bring in about another 50 to 100 spruce trees, probably Norway's. I think they seem to, to do the best here. The Black Hill spruce do pretty good. I think I've only lost out of probably the 200 spruce I put in. I think I've only lost like seven or eight. Wow. So it's been, it's been pretty successful there. Uh, um, but I want to bring in like another 50 to 100 Okay. to put in some pockets and specifically there's a section of my property that I haven't really done too much with and it's it's kind of if, if you're in my house and that food plot's up towards the road it's just north of that food plot and it's mainly hardwoods and, and some poplars in there and stuff but he did go in there and take quite a few of those poplars out so with the regrowth that's going to be coming in up to that I guess you'd call it the northwest corner of my property that's where I want to put in a lot of those um, conifers and then do some more hinge cutting. And I want to try and create, I guess, a, a bedding area up there more so than just like randomized bedding or where, wherever it's thick and convenient. But I want to create almost like a destination area for a family group of does. Because, I mean, I know I have 10 acres or just a little bit less, so I'm not going to be able to hold you know, a large amount of deer or even, you know, but if I can hold the doe and two fawns or a couple of does or a small family group and I can give them that security to where that's where they want to bed all the time and it's close to food and it's close to water, like I'm going to be happy. That'll be, that'll be successful for me because it's an area of the property where I really don't have any reason to go up there. 
to go in there. It's not going to be disturbed by me driving my truck down the driveway. It's quite a ways away from where, even from my Marcuse's trail, where I'd bring the tractor or four-wheeler through. So that's going to be probably my biggest project is trying to create that bedding area and then just kind of maximize the, the thickness of the cover that I'm going to have coming up throughout the property this spring. Okay. What else are you going to do besides the uh, spruce plantings? And uh, before we get to that, how were you that successful with your spruce plantings? Like, how did you plant these trees, and how did you not lose more of them to either drought or deer, etc.? Um, the first plantings that I did, it was in a lot of, like, high sun area, and I took five-gallon buckets of water from a big water source. I would take a big water tub out there and fill it up five gallons at a time, and I would water those trees every day when I planted them for probably a month or two months. Like, it was a tedious process. Um, the last round that I planted that were more interdispersed within the woods themselves and not necessarily as susceptible to a lot of sun and a lot of drought, those ones I watered a couple times a week, but still hauling five-gallon buckets and, you know, using a an eighth of a bucket or so per each tree, quite a bit. Um, I would just create a berm around the tree when I planted them, like a little mini donut, so it would trap any rainwater, residual stuff in there. And every time we would have a big rain, I would go out there and I would repack the root system down right at the base of the tree hmm. to make sure that you didn't get any settlement. Because what I found, if I didn't do that, the tree would almost, the roots, when they were expanding, it almost seemed like they were trying to push the tree up, and it would create a lot of air pockets in the roots. Um, and the trees that I did lose, I think that that was a big component as to why I lost them. Like, I think I missed one a couple times. And then that one just happened to be one that died. I'm not sure if that was a coincidence or not. But in doing that and, and just getting water to them at least that once or twice a week, if there's a way you can do that, that really seemed to, to do well for me. Yeah, I mean, a lot of guys don't have that option to just get out there and, and do that that much on, on the their new plantings, whether it's fruit trees or spruce trees. But good for you for, you know, making that happen. I mean, your success rate is very high. <laughs> I just knew that, you know, it's like, oh, you spend a lot of, spend a lot of time and effort out there digging a bunch of holes, and especially on the ones where you had to put in the, in the woods. And, uh, you know, you got roots you're breaking through. You know, it takes a little bit of time. The last thing you want to do is piss away all your money, piss away the time, as it means you got to put in, you know, another half an hour, a couple times in, you know, a week where you can go do that. And obviously this is a, a place where I live here where I can easily just go do that when I want to. Like yeah. It's not like a property that I own that's an hour drive up north or whatnot. Um, one thing I will probably be doing this year is when I bring in more trees to plant, whether that's, spruce or whether that's fruit or any other varieties is that uh, that product that Nick has that retains that bioorganic you know permeable membrane that retains water um I know he did a couple studies with that planting a ton of trees up in the UP and actually soaking the root ball in those retained pellets after they have absorbed water and he says that really has made a big difference in their success of you know when they're planting you know, large, large quantities of trees that they can't get up in the water on a regular basis. So I think that that's a big takeaway for, for me on, on certain areas or if there's if there's certain 
parts of my property that I don't want to go into if I'm trying to plant those into a suspected potential bedding area. And I don't want to go in there every week or something like that, setting it up or anything like that. I think that would be a, a big advantage as well. I mean, yeah, I'd, I'd fill the darn hole with those things. Like, I mean, I- explain, if you don't mind, what you think those are and how we can benefit from those. I know Nick's talked about it a couple times, but... There's really no Are you reason talking about the retainer? Mind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no reason about it in my mind how you, you know, why you wouldn't put those down. Yeah, I mean, basically he called it his insurance policy for food plots or for trees or whatever else. I mean, I think the product was, was originally designed, and he could correct me if he was here, but, you know, for, for the soil. You know, everybody experiences periods of drought no matter where you're at in the state, and, um, putting those pellets down at the same time you fertilize and just doing a light till in so they're you're in your soil within the first three inches. What they do is when you do get rain, you do get moisture, they actually will absorb any available moisture up to a certain amount. And it turns into like a almost like a gelatinous like weird orifice shaped solid almost. But they can expand up to like three hundred times the size and they start off about the size of a Kind of salt or a little bit bigger, maybe a little coarser, um, like sea salt. And man, they can get like like almost the size of a marble. Um, and some of the some of the ones that I've seen. But aside from retaining moisture, that they then can release to the root system at a later time when that plant is going through that drought. What it also does is it can create air pockets in your soil and next to the roots, which is going to help deliver oxygen to the root system and all those things too. So. Um, they last in your soil, I guess, anywhere from three to five years. And um, he sells them in bags that cover up to like half acre, whole acre, and that kind of stuff. But he basically describes it as, you know, if you, you know, we all have those stories of losing a food, food plot to a drought or losing trees to a drought. You plant a whole bunch of trees and you didn't have time to get up and water them or whatever else. To spend a little extra money and, and, and do that seems like a no-brainer to me. Yeah, I think, uh, especially with the tree planting, I mean, food plots, yeah, definitely, uh, we all focus heavy on those, but I spend more money on trees and time on trees than I do on food plots, so I think that if I actually use this product, which I haven't used the Retain yet, I've used almost every other product, um, if I use that with my trees... And then, you know, kept them clean, trimmed around the outside, gave them the space they needed versus kind of a plant and forget and hope they go type thing, which is kind of what I've been doing. Uh, I think I'd be better off. I mean, the trees need the water. The, the food plots, if you plant them, depending on when you plant them, they need water too. But at the same time, the, the trees are really where I've been struggling and I need to up my game there. So... I'm thinking. I'm glad you brought that up and, and talked about that because I think I need to really, like I said, up my game in, in that department there. I would say to that effect too. When you talk about trees, the the three pear trees I planted and the four apple trees and two crab apples behind my house that I put in. This will be the second year they've been in down there. Um, I bought three bags of retain and I mixed them up with about mm, a few gallons of water let them absorb and I put I kind of used the old paintbrush and I painted all those um, roots as best I could so those roots system were covered with those little gelatinous retain balls. Really? And 
I think I only fit. watered. I think I only watered those trees one time the first year they were planted. Wow. And it was when we had a really bad snap, like a week and a half of you know, ridiculous stuff that we had. And they did phenomenal. Um, they're growing. They're, even the pears I put in last year, or that when I put those pear trees in, um, all three pear trees were already um, blossoming, you know, for potential fruit. Yep. That's a great tip. I'm doing it. Yeah. Now, Matt, with your uh, smaller property, what kind of tips would you give somebody that's looking for a piece about your size? Because I've got a lot of buddies that, yeah, they're in the same boat as me. They got families. They've got other obligations, and they can't go out and buy the fifty or hundred acre piece. What kind of tips would you give them for um, not only like shopping for property, what to look for, but how how to start out hunting? Like when you first get in there, your first hunting season, what what should they be looking for? I think like the biggest thing for me when I was thinking about buying a chunk of property was how am I going to balance something that I want, something that my wife wants, and all those types of things. Like, how are we going to do that? Plus, find something where I can walk out my back door and hunt. So I think, like, not getting too and and buying whatever 10-acre chunk that you find is, is the biggest thing at first. But then the next thing is, I guess it, to me, I mean, obviously, the bigger the chunk of property, you could argue that, you know, the more potential that you could have. But doesn't mean that your small properties are going to be any less producers. I mean, you see every year guys with, you know, even as little as five acres up to 10 to 15 acres are arrowing these big bucks. And sure. if you're in the right location, I mean, I think with the advantage that we have nowadays with the e-scouting, you know, Onyx or HuntWise or whatever apps you're using, I mean, you have a really big advantage to be able to look at neighboring properties and whatever else. And I think that that, I mean, I think before before I bought my property, that really wasn't as available to me or I wasn't privy to that. So had I would have known that, I probably would have took a look at what else was around me. I think that that aspect of things should influence whether a guy decides to lay down some money on this chunk here or that chunk there just based off of, well, do you have a bunch of five-acre pieces around you, or do you have guys that are having 40s or having, you know, 20s and whatnot? And do you have state land by it? Do you not have state land? And those types of things. Now, so what you, did you uh, – Go ahead, Brian. I'm sorry, Jerry. No, go ahead. What was your approach for your uh, first hunting season there before you got too crazy with your uh, ideas to change anything? Basically, observation. I don't think I did much of anything. I wanted to just see what was moving through, how many deer potentially were in the area that were using my property on a weekly basis. I didn't want to wreck whatever kind of blueprint was already there for something that I thought might be better if I didn't need to. Um, I started by taking kind of inventory. We bought our house end of fall. Right around, I think we moved in right around Thanksgiving. And I think I bought a, a skidsters bucket full of sugar beets that first year, put them in my, my big wood hauling trailer, and it's only five gallons at a time all winter long just to see 
just to see what kind of deer were even around the area, what was going on. And I'd see anywhere from two deer out the back of my property, off my back porch, down below the hill, to a maximum, I think, five or six. So I was like, okay, well, there's deer, but, you know, there's probably more than that, and they probably don't have necessarily a reason to come on here. So in the next hunting season, I didn't put, I think I had that, that front plot I had tilled up into two tiny strips because it took me long enough with the walk behind. And then I didn't do any cutting. I didn't do any trails. I just tried to look for where the natural deer runways are, maybe where a natural pinch point was. One of the narrow spots in the creek, they like to cross down there. So I had a tree stand hung in a couple different spots based off of wind down there. And I just basically saw what those deer naturally wanted to do. And then from that, first year in observation, that's kind of where I decided, oh, yeah, I'm going to put this little kill plot in up here, and I'm going to make this trail system go this way and wind this way around and move forward that way. So, Matt, it sounds like you have your property uh, at least halfway figured out, you know, for, for as long as you've been there. Um, what are your thoughts for the rest of the season on hunting? You know, where are you focusing the rest of your time? I mean, it's late November already. Uh, you know, are you hunting food plots or, or what are you hunting? Um, I'm probably letting my house live. And like I said, I got a lot of I got a lot of state land, probably within about a quarter mile, two hundred acres, right within a quarter mile of my house that gets pretty heavily hunted during rifle season. There's still a few trucks out there on a on a weekly basis and whatnot. Um, so most of the deer around my house have been turned pretty nocturnal just because of the, the pressure and whatnot. But if we don't get too much snow in the meantime, I actually went in uh, midday last week. And, you know, this may be a dumb move or not, but I had a bunch of oak leaves that were covering up a lot of my my good clover that was still pretty lush. So I ran out there in the middle of the day like the bonehead move that it probably was and took my big Husqvarna leaf blower and blew it in the ass. You know, maybe that was good, maybe that wasn't good, but I'm like, well, we're going to have a couple days with some partial sun and some more rain and whatever else, and if I got the only green food around come early December to mid-December and we still don't have snow, that could that could be a game changer come the fall, yeah. come the oh, end of yeah. season, I mean. So I went out and did that knowing that there wasn't a lot of deer moving through my property in the daytime at that particular time of season. But as for my focus, my house probably later on, maybe end of muzzleloader or late bow, but in the immediate future, I'll probably be up at my lease trying to fill the last doe tag I have up there. Maybe catch a book that's searching out one of those, you know, last few does or that second round of does that are going to go into heat here. And, um, and then my buddy and I have been talking about and toying with the idea of going up into some of the inside zone and uh, have snow up there and driving up early one morning and, and just trying to cut a fresh track. And if there's if there's no hunters up there, we talked about doing this like midweek, just even doing some, some still hunting on a big track. Never done it before, but seen a few videos and – read a lot about those guys that do that kind of stuff in the Adirondacks and stuff like that. I mean, I figure at this point in the season, I got nothing else to lose, so what the heck. Yeah, well, I was just up there, uh, so I wish you luck. <laughs> uh, 
I hunted like I hunted three days. The biggest deer I saw was a about a one and a half, two inch spike. So, but oh, I was man. not I was not cutting a track, and I was not you know doing the big woods style, uh, Jim Shockey, if you will, through the woods. I was just tree stand hunting, but um, there there are a lot of deer up there. If you you know I was in Benzie County, so I don't know where you're going, but I was okay. uh, I was up north. It was beautiful country. It was very just serene it was awesome um i encourage you to go out there if you can get on a good track i mean you, you I guarantee you'll have a great time no matter what you do so yeah, i mean we my buddy and i just figured you know new experience something different to yeah. do if, yeah if what we got locally going on that we usually pull from isn't really producing the way we want it to or you know maybe it's just this year, given the parameters that are existing with the with the standing crops and whatever else going on, if that's not in the cards, you know, we we really don't got anything to lose besides just gaining a new experience and a new way of, of doing something and then we'll we'll kinda of see where that leads and none nothing else, just kinda of put boots on the ground and explore some uh some new woods and some state land and, you know, maybe turn that into uh you know, a bow weekend trip and just do like a little camping style at the truck and for a weekend, I know my my taxidermist. He's got a spot in Manistee, and I don't know where, but him and his dad had probably a record year on the state land. They went up, I think it was the last weekend in October. Him and his dad both shot two two and a half year old eight pointers. Wow! And his dad shot a um, four and a half year old eleven, and then he went up a week later and shot a three and a half year old ten. Wow. All out of the same chunk of state land, and all probably their stands were within a quarter mile or half a mile of each other. Yeah, you should probably so, check that out. <laughs> <laughs> I told him, I was like, well, since you boys are tagged out, I'm yeah, like, you give me the GPS card so I can go up there during muzzleloader, right? Yeah. <laughs> he just kind of laughed at me. I was like, I'll send you more referrals. I mean, I'll, I'll send you guys that need their deer money because I'm not probably sending you one this year. Yeah, it's like, hey, uh, you think I'm kidding, but seriously, uh, where are the coordinates? <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, I'll, I'll have to send you a picture here when we get off here, but the, the one yeah, that Dad killed is a brute. It's a beautiful deer. I mean, for a, for a, anywhere, public or private, it's a great deer, but especially for a public land deer, um, it's a really good deer. Well, I just, it just goes to show that I think that the idea of letting deer get a little bit older as a culture, is starting to maybe, you know, grasp. And, uh, you know, I, I urge anybody to shoot whatever they want, as long as you're legal. And, uh, yeah. you know, but I think um, the APRs and, and the culture up in that that part of the state, that northwest corner, is starting to show some of the benefits of doing so. Um, I didn't see it when I went up there hunting, but I was also... Uh, just up there for a couple of days and didn't get to scout much, and that's my own fault. So, nothing against all that. But, um, Matt, I do appreciate you coming on, buddy. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you want to mention before we wrap this up? No, I mean, I really, I really think that you know we kind of set out to do you know what we tried to do for this episode, and you know, hopefully there'll be you know I'm just hoping to accomplish maybe 50% of what I what I talked about, you know 
there tonight as far as what I want to do this year. I got 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 a two year old son and he occupies a lot of time and you know that's always a big priority. So if it means that the habitat stuff takes a little bit of the back burner at, at particular times, then that's okay. Um, but the biggest thing was just getting the base plan kind of in motion and then just working at the rest of the stuff and putting the finishing, you know, the fin- finishing touches on when you can. That's uh, that's kind of my my goal and, and my plan moving forward. So well, I think I think we covered pretty much everything that I know you were, were talking with me about, unless there's anything that you guys wanted to cover or talk about before we wrap it up. Finishing touches, thats that sounds nice. I'd like to see a finish line somewhere myself at some point. <laughs> well, my wife teases me all the time because, you know, we're we're always on the – I mean, my eyes are always looking out for houses and properties and whatever else. We actually put an offer in on a house earlier this year. It was 48 acres and had like a three-quarter acre pond that was stocked and a couple pole buildings and just really sweet place. And uh, Yeah, sounds like it. Didn't get it, but my wife was giving me shit the whole time saying, you know what, you've already put so much time, effort, and money into the 10, and I, you know, sometimes barely see as it is. And she's like, multiply yeah. that by almost five. She's like, will I ever see it? Yeah, but I mean, like, I think that that'll, I mean, we talk about like, what's your plan? That's my ideal plan anywhere in the future is if I come across the right chunk of 40 or bigger, it's getting back to either right. live on it or have it. And because I told myself if I could ever be fortunate enough in the time that I'm living on my 10 acres, the water from off this 10 acres, whatever I'm living here for five years or for 10 years. If I could do that off of 10, managing the property as best as I know how, you know, what what I, what I could I potentially do with 40 in a regular or something like that. So I think that's kind yeah. of my immediate future goal with what I have access to right now and the things to be able to do. And then eventually down the road, hopefully once I perfect what this learning process of the habitat management is, maybe I'll have the opportunity to do that on a little bit larger scale and then obviously be able to scale up the uh, the maturity class of the deer as well too yeah there's there's so much that goes into it and, it, and it's all perspective like Jared and I have had uh, our buddy Al on the podcast before and we're, we talk almost every day with him he's got uh, I think he's pushing 250 acres or something and I've got a 40 Jared's got a little bit smaller to me and I just I can't imagine the, the amount of work I, I struggle to keep up with my 40 and then Al talks about that with his 250 and then there's guys with you know 500 or whatever it's I guess it's all relative but it does get to get overwhelming sometimes oh yeah I mean shoot even when I had my 10 acres just select cut I was like holy crap how do these guys do this like at 80 or 100 or 120 right. or right. even more and I'm like holy smokes like that's, I mean, that's that's a lot of sweat. It's a lot of grinding every single day, every single night. That was even with, you know, helping my dad and helping my neighbor across the creek there. And, you know, two tractors going at the same time, both with grapples, and it still took quite a while. So, just, Yeah, li- living there is huge, if you, if you can make that happen. I know yep. Jared, Jared lives a little bit away from his. I'm an hour and a half from mine, and that, that cuts into it also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you 
you, you don't think like, oh, you know, hindsight, like 30, 40 minute drive, no big deal. But then two, three years down the road, when you add up 30, 40 minute drive multiplied by two drives a week at times, and you know that all that time adds up as well too. So, absolutely. No, I think I think Brian uh, hit that nail on the head there. I'm I'm an hour and ten, hour and fifteen from my property. Um, and 15 acres, and I think uh, it does add up. It does make it harder to to get there more often. Um, I mean, you can prioritize your time and, and make it happen, but if that was 30 minutes, or 40 minutes, even cut just cut off a half hour, you know, make it 40 <laughs> minutes. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm already seeing... The, the benefits of being closer to home. Uh, I don't want to be so close where I can just drive out there and check a camera every every day. Like I don't want to be that close, but I want to be. I think I think I do want to be a little bit closer. I've learned over the past three years. Uh, but I have a pretty sweet little property, so I really don't want to just you know sell one to buy one that you know, you don't know what you're getting. But along with mass thing, I also want bigger. You know, we all want it bigger. Um, but at the same time as that, as confusing as this may be going, to manage 40 or 80. Brian, you're you're working your ass off all year long out there. Um, I don't put it near the hours you do. I mean, a, f- a full 40-acre parcel, the amount of habitat work that you do, I mean, you, you're, you're killing it out there. So it's kind of like, yeah, it's a lot of work to create a dough factory. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just it's just like. But that's it, another story for another time. <laughs> I, I, I I guess the lesson to to anybody who's who's getting into this and and who really want a bigger property or or a better property or just you know it. This is our passion. This is what we do. Um, it's a never-ending game. So Matt could be working on cleaning up his 10 acres for this, or from the select cut for a year. Uh, or it could be five years. Or, you know, it could be 80 acres. It could be 10 years. It, it's never-ending. I think um, a lot of our listeners know that, but maybe some of the newer people who have tuned in might not know that. It's really just a, a never-ending project. We're all in it for the long run and, and for the better, uh, the betterment of the, of the habitat. So, um, I think that's basically all of our goals. And uh, Matt, I do appreciate you coming on and, and sharing what you have to say. Uh, you're a successful West Michigan bow hunter, and uh, I can't wait to hopefully get a game plan in with you this year yet. So, I really oh, do appreciate coming. you coming on, it's man. Coming. Yeah, that'd be nice. It, yeah, probably at this point in time, for instead of a game plan, it'll probably be like a an audible, audible hot route, you know, <laughs> hey, well, man, some, some you know annexation of Puerto Rico type of thing. But yeah, it, hopefully that'll we'll be able to do that. That'd be nice. Well, I'm just putting that pressure on you, so uh, Brian and I <laughs> don't have that pressure. So that's kind of. Oh. Cause, uh, I don't think it works like that. I think if, yeah. if you're going to pressure me, I think you pull a better shoulder than burden because the way things have been going this season, I'm just going to, you know, just take it day by day, see what happens. If I get lucky, then beautiful. If not, still a good season. 
Okay. Yeah, there's no way anybody's going to put any more pressure on us than we already have on ourselves, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's at least true. at least mass smart enough to see through the bullshit. Uh yeah, we uh <laughs> yeah. The the uh, the pressure's there. All, you know, all the above. So, we're uh we're still hunting hard. It's uh end of November. I wish uh, everybody the best of luck, but guys, we need to kill a buck. So, <laughs> Let's do it. I don't know. So I got. Yeah, well, thanks guys for having me on. I really do appreciate it. It was fun. Anytime yeah, you, you get to talk, yeah. Anytime we get to talk deer or habitat, it's always it's always good, always fun. It's always good to learn everybody's different perspectives, and you get people asking you different questions about stuff maybe that didn't get asked before. So it's always good. Yeah, great point on Thanksgiving Eve. Just thankful to be able to sit and talk about this stuff we take a lot of stuff for granted for sure and uh happy thanksgiving to everybody out there i know you'll be listening to this afterwards but hope you had a good one and hope you have a great holiday season all right thank you once again matt for coming on the podcast me and to chat with you for a while buddy and i hope you have a good luck the rest of the season guys thank you for coming back the listeners we always love you we're glad you came back if you love the podcast, uh, be sure to go on our iTunes app, or I should call it the podcast app, on uh, any Apple phone, or even on the iTunes website. Just Google Habitat Podcast iTunes, and uh, all the reviews will come up. I am sending free details to anybody who's leaving us a review on iTunes. I'm going to read off two of the most recent reviews real quick. Jay Bertram. Always look forward to a new podcast. Nothing like learning about habitat management. Thanks, Jay. Appreciate it, man. The next review is from Nate Broomer. I hope I pronounced that right, Nate. I found this podcast in the midst of a season that wasn't looking good and wanted to learn more about whitetail habitat. And, man, this podcast does just that. Definitely hooked. Awesome guys and great podcast. Nate, that sounds like I paid you to say that, buddy. I didn't, and I appreciate it. I will be sending you a free detail as well. Thank you so much for the support, and I hope uh, you have some plans for your next season uh, that you can implement in the meantime to turn this season around. So thank you to the listeners for leaving those great reviews. Like I said, free details coming your way. I also want to thank our sponsors here. We have the HuntWise app, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Killer Food Plots, 5-2 Outdoors, Hacker Max, Cultivators. Guys, be sure to mention the podcast when you talk to these guys on Facebook or if you're going to order something. We have discounts right now at 52 Outdoors and uh, Packer Max. We have a Killer Food Plots discount coming very soon. Be sure to get that going with you guys. And, uh, you know, some more Habitat Hook stuff coming soon, too. So hang in there. Be sure to follow us online at HabitatPodcast.com. Like I mentioned, we have a Cyber Monday deal going on there. Use the code LOYAL10 for 10% off any product. And just, you know, keep downloading our podcast. Keep listening to us. We really love the support. All right, guys, enough from me. We will see you guys all next week with another podcast. Hang in there, and I hope, uh, you know, I wish you luck for the rest of your deer season here as all of us, including me, try to get out and tag a big old buck or nice doe. Take care as we become better habitat managers. Uh-huh.